you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this moment in the service, the service which is all about you, we've come and we have, we have sung with our own lips and praised your name and glorified you. And God, we are ready and willing. Let that be our prayer, God, that it's our confession this morning. We are We are ready and willing to hear and to heed your word. And, oh, Father, we ask you this morning by your Holy Spirit's presence that you would meet us each where we are. God, that you would work in our hearts and our minds today and cause us to long more deeply for you. God, that you would shape and fashion even within us our wills, that it would They would match your will and be surrendered to your will. And God, that you would lead us in in all truth and open our eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful truth and to comprehend the wonderful truth of your word, perhaps in a fresh way today. Perhaps for the first time. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would minister this morning in this place and that you would receive the glory and the honor and the praise that is due your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you found your place in John chapter 3, verse 22, say amen. Let us uh, follow along as I read. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing and and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In John chapter 3, we see the last testimony of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. We see it here. But I want to ask you a question as we 
as we begin to look at this passage this morning. And that is, what do you delight in? What is it in your life that brings you great delight, that brings you great joy? Grandparents, is it, is it seeing your grandchildren play, play ball games or, or hearing them tell you the latest of what they have learned and, and, and you just get awed by how, uh, how, how smart these young grandchildren you have are? Is it parents, is it seeing them play in the sports and, and enjoying watching them excel and succeed or, or even seeing them grow up and get married and then begin a family of their own? Parents, what is it that brings you great delight and great joy in life? Is it spending time with your kids and seeing them uh, grow in understanding and knowledge of God's word, perhaps? Or is it your spouse, husband, wife? You have great delight in spending time and, 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 and just being with them, with that person, knowing that person more intimately and growing older with your spouse. What is it that brings you great joy in life? I think we're clued in here in John chapter 3, what brings John the Baptist great joy in life. And what brings John the Baptist great joy in life, it, it is being centered in God's will and knowing that what he is doing is accomplishing what God has called him to accomplish. And so the text that we're looking at this morning, the title of the sermon is Learning to Delight in Surrendering to God. And I think that's exactly what John the Baptist has done in his life. He is, he is delighting in surrendering to God in his life. He is delighting in surrendering everything that he has, everything that he's about. He's delighting to surrendering it to God. In fact, in John chapter 33, verse 30 here, it's that line that is so humbling yet so wonderful where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. What a tremendous word coming off the lips of John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. As I began studying this passage this Sunday, I immediately had the que- for this Sunday, I immediately had the question out of verse 22. It says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing it seems to be a little unclear, and I began asking a question, was Jesus baptizing here or not? And so I, as I began searching that out, I realized that no, he certainly wasn't baptizing. But what Jesus was doing was he was baptizing through his disciples. And we see that in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if you just kind of skip forward a little bit. Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Parentheses, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. It answers the question for us as we look and ask, why does it say or seem to indicate that Jesus was baptizing? And certainly Jesus wasn't baptizing here. But I think what we see, this is a, this is a transition between John's baptism and Christian baptism. It's not Christian baptism as we have seen this morning. But this is a transition between John and Christian baptism. Jesus baptized with water through his disciples in order to to, to point to the spiritual cleansing that was needed as John was doing. And this spiritual cleansing, we know by the end of the gospel, will be brought about by the blood and the spirit of Christ. The blood of Christ being poured out and the, the spirit of Christ being sent down from heaven One commentator in his commentary, William Hendrickson, 
he, he says that this teaches us that Jesus, by baptizing through his disciples, manifests himself as being greater than John the Baptist, which fits with verse 30 off the lips of John, that he must increase and I must decrease. Verse 24, though, offers us a little bit more of the background. It tells us in verse 23, John was also baptizing in a, in a region that was north of where Jesus and his disciples were. In verse 24, says John had not yet been thrown into prison, which is indicative that there's some ministry happening in the life of John the Baptist uh, and in the life while Jesus, or, or this ministry that's going on uh, while Jesus is baptizing, that John the Baptist also is baptizing. In the synoptics, we have a little bit of a, a different understanding as we read through the synoptics. And so what John is telling us is that these events are recorded from an earlier time of ministry and with Jesus and his disciples. But in verse 25, we get to the issue at hand. And the, the, the issue at hand is there arose a discussion on part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. There was a, a struggle by John's disciples when they see Jesus baptizing. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning in this text is that there is a joyful freedom in a life submitted to the sovereignty of God. There is a joyful freedom in the life submitted to the sovereignty of God. And I think John the Baptist shows us that, especially as we see him delighting and responding to his disciples when they come to him. In verse 25, he says, therefore, this discussion arose. In verse 26, after these disciples hear this discussion with the Jews about purification, they come back to John. And when they come to him, they said, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified. Behold, he's baptizing and, and all are coming to him. We begin to see the competitive spirit that was existent among the disciples of John. It, it begins to emerge here. And as, as it emerges, we, we see that John's ministry in baptism is, is still flourishing. There are many who were still coming to John in that northern region and being baptized by him. But it's becoming noticeable that Jesus' ministry is, is ever increasing. And as John's disciples come to John... They're wanting him to take some action in response to Jesus' growing popularity. They're wanting him to, to make some statement or to make something known. And so as his disciples reveal their envy and, and their spite for what's happening, even evidenced by their, the comment there in verse, in verse 26, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. And as they evidence this, Despite, and as they evidence this, um, this envy, we see John responding humbly, not responding to their concerns, but responding humbly. One commentator says their concern to protect the, the popularity and prestige of their teacher. But personally, I wonder if they weren't also concerned with their association with something that was much greater than themselves. We've already noted in the Gospel of John that man has a, a, a desire, an inward desire for those things which are sensational and to be, uh, to be grouped together with those things that are sensational and attracted to those. And so we've seen this scenario play out in the history of the church in various ways. 
And what always amazes me, it, it amazes me how we can become so blinded to cur- by current events that we miss the big picture. We miss the big picture of what's going on. Like, like John's disciples here, he's been, he's been proclaiming and pointing to Jesus Christ as the one whom God is sending. He has been pointing all, uh, all of the people that, that's come to him, he's been pointing them to Christ. He's been telling the disciples, look and see this one, look and see Christ. Yet they miss the big picture of what John's ministry is all about. And they get caught up in these current events that are going on. I suppose that's why the expression hindsight's 2020 is such a popular expression. We see this in our own lives. We tend to look back and see how we we could have done that a little bit better. We could have been more faithful. We we missed hearing from God on this specific issue or or on that specific issue when we made a decision I think we all can identify with John the Baptist's disciples here. But I want you to notice that John wasn't concerned with the size of his following. He wasn't concerned with popularity. He, wasn't, he, he was only concerned with faithfully carrying out the mission that had been entrusted to him, that had been given to him as he was sent by God. And I think John's response to his disciples is a fitting word that many, many need to hear today. So often... So often the health of the church is determined by the size, by how many people are attending or how many people are going, the numbers. But instead, the church ought to be measured, the health of the church ought to be measured by by the mission and carrying out the mission that God has called us to. It's not about the numbers for John the Baptist. What it's about for John the Baptist is, am I being faithful in what God has called me to do? You know, the next question for us, it's to consider, are we being faithful? Christian believer, are you being faithful in what God has called you or is calling you to do? Are you being faithful in using those spiritual gifts that God has invested in you to serve the kingdom of God. How are you being faithful? How are we being faithful in, with the gifts that God has entrusted to us? How are we faithfully serving Him? And so I think what we see is when we are experiencing the joyful freedom of a life submitted to the sovereignty of God, we will, like John, recognize God's mercy and grace that he even includes us in his plan. We will recognize when when we're living in this liberation, in the freedom, in the joyful freedom of, of our lives being submitted to God and his plan, we will recognize God's mercy and his grace in our life that he even includes us in his plan. Look in verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's given him from heaven. You see, John knows the blessing that he has received, or that any blessings, rather, that he has received, and any popularity that he might have, or any platform that he's been given, it's only because the Lord has sovereignly orchestrated it in his life, and only because the Lord has given it to him. This is the realization of John the Baptist, as he says, uh, realizing that he had been sent by God to do this very specific work. And I want to challenge us that we must be careful not to look past the platform that God has given each of us in serving Him. 
not to look past where God has placed us individually in our respective roles at work or or in our families or the things that God has called us to do, not to look past those, but simply to focus on them and to see what God is, is desiring to do through us and to recognize God's mercy and grace that's been extended to us as He's in wanting and desiring to include us in His plan. I'm sure you're familiar with the old study, or maybe you're not, but Henry Blackaby had an old study experiencing God, and the the key principle in that study was look around, find out where God's working, and join Him in that work. And this is exactly what God is calling us to do in, in our lives. See where God's at work and realize, recognize the grace and the mercy of God in our lives that, that He would use us to, to be employed in the service of His kingdom, to engage others for the sake of God's kingdom. A mentor told a good friend of mine one time he was, he was discontented in, in his present circumstances, and he was considering a big change in his life. And the mentor told him, he said, the, the reason the grass looks greener on the other side is because it's usually on top of a septic tank. You know, if we're not careful, things can always look better over there. Things can always look better. We, we can always get attracted to, to something that is not God's design or, nor desire. Like, like John the Baptist's disciples being distracted by those things which are worldly and those things, those standards by which the world places for that which is important. And so for John the Baptist's disciples, they were concerned about this popularity and they were concerned about these all these other things, and John simply states, a man can do nothing unless it's been given him from God. He can receive nothing unless it's been given him from God. John's response was one of great humility, and he shows us the true meaning of contentment in life. John celebrates, and he knows that God's sovereign over his life, and he's called him to serve in a unique and specific way. So why should he be upset? Why should John the Baptist at this point in his life doubt the sovereign Lord? He knows God's plans are much bigger than him, yet yet in his mercy and in his grace, he saw fit to use this one name, John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Christ. There's no room for envy and and pride or self-adulation or even for disappointment. Instead, just the opposite. It calls for rejoicing and God-focused worship, as we'll see in a moment when, when John says, Listen, the bridegroom has come. My joy is complete. My joy is complete. It's not about us, you see. It's about God. I think we need to internalize this truth this morning. It's not about us. It's about God. Because when we think deeply on the reality that God has graciously and mercifully extended His hand to us and and given us of His Spirit, then we realize that in doing so, He's equipped us with gifts of the Spirit for carrying out His work, His work in the kingdom. Those works which He has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. So John knows this truth. God doesn't owe him anything. 
He celebrates this truth. God doesn't owe him anything. We need to recognize this truth as well. That God doesn't owe us anything, but graciously and, and mercifully he has come and he has called us out of darkness into light. And if we're not careful, this entitlement mentality can creep into our own lives and even be reflected in our in our attitudes as we approach God to worship him. And so, brothers and sisters, I would challenge us to repent if we find ourselves thinking that God owes us anything. John the Baptist was quick to cut it off. And say, listen, I can only receive what my heavenly father has given me. Is that our view in life when when it comes to our lot, our place in life? Are we willing to surrender that to God and say, I can only receive what you give me, Father? Is that our heart attitude? Is that our is that our desire? Is that our confession before the Lord? When we're experiencing the joyful freedom of a life submitted to the sovereignty of God, we will, like John, secondly, embrace the gifts and calling of God as our life's mission. We will embrace the gifts and calling of God as our life's mission in verses 27 and 28, continuing through 27 in verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. What more can John say? He's been preaching. He's been preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and he's been saying, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. And he's been pointing others to Jesus saying, behold, the Lamb of God, see him. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. And he's been saying, I am not the Christ. And quoting from the prophet Isaiah saying, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. See, John has embraced the call of God in his life's mission. He has prepared the way for Christ, the Messiah. And John lived his calling well. He was a faithful witness to use his God-given gifts to serve in preparation for the coming of Christ. And not to serve his own fame or his own glory, but he used his gifts to serve Christ and to serve the fame of Christ and the glory of God. The question I would ask us this morning is to consider how has God gifted us? Believer, how has God gifted you? With what gift has God equipped you to be serving in his body, in the church Do we use our gifts to promote the glory of God, the glory of Christ? Or are we using our gifts to promote the glory of self, to serve the God of self? God's design and desire in our lives is not that we would use these God-given gifts to promote our own kingdom, but to promote His kingdom. Do we take credit for the blessings and the gifts of God in our lives? Or do we use these blessings and gifts as resources for the spreading of the kingdom of God, for the accomplishing of the work of God? When we're experiencing the joyful freedom of a life submitted to the sovereignty of God, we will, like John, 
and you've given me fits this morning. I'm sorry, God. We will, like John, joyfully delight in knowing that we are serving God's redemptive plan. When we are joyful, when we are experiencing the joyful freedom of a life submitted to the sovereignty of God, we will joyfully delight in knowing we are serving God's redemptive plan. The illustration of, of the friend and the bridegroom clues us into to John's view of himself and his role in announcing the arrival of Messiah in verses 29 and 30. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. You see the joy there? His joy has been made full. You see, the friend of the bridegroom wasn't an ordinary groomsman. He was similar in some ways to to the best man of our day, but his role was to make preparations for the bride to come and to meet the bridegroom. On that day, the, the friend would go to the bride's house and would escort the bride to the bridegroom's chamber and wait outside to hear the joyful voice of the bridegroom as he received his bride. Brokered in his commentary, Speaking of these customs, says the friend of the bridegroom was able to certify to the wedding guest that the consummation of the marriage had taken place and the joyous festivities could continue. Like the friend of the bridegroom, John finds his greatest joy complete in announcing the consummation of God's plan. That's what's happening. That's what this illustration is showing us here. John saying, this was the mission that God has called me to. This is why I have come. I've come to prepare the way of the Lord. I've come to prepare the way for Christ. And then he says, just as the, the friend at the, at the, uh, the friend of the bridegroom comes and he hears the voice of the bridegroom, he is able to rejoice and to celebrate it. And he says, my joy has been made complete because I have realized that the Christ has come and that the work that God called me to do, I have done. I want you to know that as believers, we'll find our greatest joy in satisfaction and in sense of purpose when we walk in accordance with the will of God in our lives too. That we too will be able to delight in the goodness of God's plan in our life when we are walking according to His will and following Him. God has uniquely called and gifted each of us, each, each believer He has uniquely called and gifted us and and wired us to serve in his body, to serve in the church and and to carry out his greater purpose of exalting Christ and advancing the kingdom of God. And as we faithfully follow Jesus by the Holy Spirit's leading, we will be able to say with John, my joy is complete. Like John the Baptist, the, the child of God who knows God and is certain of his leading will have joy and confidence that surpasses all earthly circumstances. He or she won't be distracted by those things which, which promote man's glory because they're fixed on that which promotes the glory of God. And so we will be able to say with John in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, because the reality is John's desire wasn't to stand in the way 
of anybody seeing Christ. Instead, John himself wanted to be a catalyst. He wanted to be the catalyst pointing others to Christ. And John is saying here, Christ must increase through his works, through his action, through his ministry. And then he says, by default, I must decrease. Literally, that's what he's telling his disciples. My ministry of baptizing is decreasing and his is going to increase. The question for us as parents, as children, as students, college students, high school, junior high, young students... Employees, employers, spouses, what role God has called you to. The question for us to consider is how might we decrease in that role so Christ might increase in that role in our lives and through us? What role or roles has God placed before you in this earthly life by which you and I, by which we're to serve the kingdom of God? How has he how has he placed these roles before us and what has he called us to in each of them? For Christ to increase, we must decrease. And this is a very personal and very, very intimate interaction between us and our heavenly father where we come before him and and even on our knees would say, God, I need you to increase in my life and and and, and, and I need to decrease. It means all of me. All of who I am, all of who we are, must be laid before Christ for this to be our perspective. And daily we must be about living in joyful submission to Christ. And as as a parent, it means I'm dying to the selfish pursuits in my in my own life, in my own searching and seeking out for my own vainglory. And I'm I'm dying to those things so that I might I might cherish and, 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 and teach and instruct my children. It means as a parent, I, I must recognize that I simply don't have the time to do the things that I, I selfishly might want to do. But because of my God-entrusted responsibility as a parent over four precious souls, I must yield to that which is truly good and right and ordained by God by His sovereign hand. And I must invest in their life, sacrificing time to instruct them and sacrificing time so that I might teach them and show them the ways of the Lord and invest in them, right? As a student, everything I do as a student would reflect and bring honor and glory to God. And as much as we hate to hear this, students, even in our grades, it says, says something about our desire to honor and to glorify God and what we're doing. But beyond that, in our, in our social life, in, in relationships for the singles, in, in, in how we, we guard that, that, precious, uh, that precious purity that God has called us to until the, the point of marriage, in, in all of these ways, we are to be considering in my life, in my relationship, how is God increasing and how is Nick decreasing? How is God growing in and through me and how am I decreasing in what I want for the sake of God? 
for employees or employers. You, you, get the, you get the picture. How, how, God, how am I to be the best employee for your glory? And, and how am I to, to decrease so that you might increase? How, how might you use me to impact others that, that I'm working with and, and that I'm engaging with on a daily basis? And In what way are you calling me to, to decrease so that you might increase? Show me, Father. Are for spouses and wanting to live out this biblical model of, of what, it, what it looks like as a, a husband to, to let Christ increase in my life and, and me decrease. So it's not about what, what I want. It's not about what Nick wants, but it's about serving my bride as Christ serves and, and loves the church. That's, that's what it's about. And as, as a wife, not saying, what, what is it about my needs, but what is it about, what is it about meeting his needs? How, how can I serve him? How can I, I live my life in a way that's honoring, and in a way that, that brings God glory where Christ is increasing and I am decreasing? You see how this, this works for John the Baptist? He's saying, listen... I've got to decrease, and Christ has got to increase. And for us this morning, I think we need to walk away with this principle and hear this. I serve those around me best when I'm serving Christ because when I'm doing so, my life will naturally point others to Christ. I serve others best when I'm serving Christ Because when I'm doing so, my life will naturally point others to Christ. The second point, main point that I want us to see this morning is believing Jesus' testimony is eternally significant. We've seen how this fleshes out in John the Baptist's life. We've seen how, um, how John the Baptist is wanting to uh, to, to point others to Christ, to be that catalyst to point others to Christ. He's, he's, he, he's, he's having joy and deriving joy and, uh, in living and fulfilling God's work and God's plan through him. And he has his greatest sense of joy in doing that, so much so that he could say, as the bride and the bridegroom interact, he could say, my joy is complete. But then we see in verse 32... Believing Jesus, or verse 31, believing Jesus' testimony is eternally significant. First, that the reason it's eternally significant is because I think first the text indicates that Jesus speaks the words of God. This is why it's eternally significant. Because Jesus speaks the words of God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. And speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. In verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus came from above. And because he is from heaven he is higher than all. And so the question, why then believe his testimony? 
And I think first we, we believe his testimony because as one who is from heaven, he is the one who speaks the word of God completely and fully. Christ is the one who speaks the word of God completely and fully. Every word Christ speaks is a word from God because he's of heaven. He is from heaven. He is the sent one. The sent one here in verse 34, for he whom he for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God is referring to Jesus, not referring to John the Baptist. In other words, God the Father has given the Son pure and total, complete fullness of the Spirit. Literally, in verse 34 there, it says He has given the Spirit without measure. Meaning that He is unlike any other prophet who has received a measure of the Spirit in order to prophesy or speak God's Word. But because of Christ's perfection and and because of His holiness... He knows and lives in unhindered fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This is what verse 34 is showing us. That's why in John 8, 28, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus would say to them, when, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. But, listen, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, John was an imperfect vessel used by God to proclaim the entrance of the king, the son of man, Jesus Christ. But John was of the earth, and Christ is seen as the one who is exalted, who is above. He is of heaven. And it's Christ who is the revealer of God's salvation for man. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. That is, he possesses divine wisdom and through his testimony as the word and as the light, he both speaks and he reflects the truth of God. But John says no one receives his testimony. John doesn't literally here mean that nobody receives his testimony, but this is an example of John using hyperbole in order to exaggerate the reality that the masses do not receive the testimony of God. Many will hear, but few will receive. And it's the same today. Many will hear, but many will reject. Many will reject the Lord's testimony. And Jesus being eternal and coming from above testifies of this heavenly truth and the eternal reality that he has come down from heaven, walked the earth and provided a way of salvation for men to live eternally in the presence of God. The second reason we should believe the testimony of Christ is because Scripture here, and here it tells us that Jesus holds all authority in verse 35. Jesus holds all authority. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. All things here is comprehensive. It's a comprehensive statement. Everything has been given into the hand of God, of Jesus. All things. In other words, there is nothing that has been held back or kept from Christ. 
Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, right? All authority has been given to me, Jesus says, both in heaven and on earth. Nothing has been withheld. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And listen, in him all things hold together. He has been given authority. We, we hear the testimony of Christ. We see that he, he spoke the words of God. He speaks the words of God. And, and he, he has all authority in his hand. So why should we believe the testimony of Christ? Well, because even the reality and security of our salvation is in the hand of Jesus. That's what this passage is teaching us. Believing his testimony is eternally significant because Jesus is the only hope for our salvation. In verse 33, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. In verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, just simply states, those who receive his witness attest to the truthfulness of God. It confused me a little bit when I began reading verse 33, who has received his testimony, has set his seal on this, that God is true. And I, I wasn't sure if that was speaking about God setting his seal on man or on man setting his seal on this reality that God is true. And it is the latter that man sets his in believing, in receiving the testimony that Jesus brings. Man sets his seal. He affirms this is the truth about God. He affirms that Jesus Christ's words and testimony are true. It is the true representation of who God is, of God's design and desire. And so what he's saying is whoever receives this testimony of Jesus, he certifies, she certifies that that their belief in God is certain, that God is true. This language captures the idea of a a signet ring which was used by individuals to certify their approval or their acceptance of something, usually something such as a, a document. But what John is saying here is that if Jesus is from above and speaks only the words of the Father and has been given the Holy Spirit without measure and the things which Christ reveals are those things which are from heaven that which he alone has seen and he has heard, then he is the one who possesses divine wisdom from above, and he reveals the Father to us. The truth of God is this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The truth of God is this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The truth of God is this. 
that Christ would hang upon a cross and He would suffer the penalty of God's wrath, taking sin of man upon Himself so that He might put sin to death and then resurrect to new life and ascend to the Father. This is the truth of God through Christ. So the question is, why should we believe the testimony of Jesus? And lastly, I would say this. If a person doesn't receive the testimony of Jesus about God and himself, then finally they distort the truth of who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. And consequently, this person doesn't truly worship the God of heaven, the God of Scripture. Now, that's a significant point. So significant that Jesus makes this point in chapter 4, verse 22, in his interaction with the woman at the well, when he says to her, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people who worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Why do we believe the testimony of Jesus? We believe because He speaks the word of God. We believe because He has come down from heaven. Because He holds the authority. All authority has been placed in His hand. And he who believes has eternal life, but he who doesn't obey, it says, will not see life but the wrath of God. I want you to notice that belief is defined in verse 36 there by obedience. That belief and obedience to Christ are one and the same. Many today say, well, I believe in Jesus but I don't want to pattern my life or surrender my life to live after him, which is what John the Baptist was showing us in the beginning in the first point about being joyfully surrendered to serving God's great work and his redemptive plan. But he also says, for all those who do not obey, who don't receive the testimony of Christ, Scripture says the wrath of God remains on them. They're not, <clears throat> they are not at that point condemned. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they continue in the status of condemnation before God. There is one way to be brought out of the status of condemnation before God, and that is by faith, placing one's faith, receiving the testimony of Jesus as has been put forth in this passage that we would believe in the Son and have eternal life. So I want to challenge you this morning. If there's anyone here that has never come to a place in your life where you have repented of sin and by faith come to Christ and said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you and I want to live in obedience to you. Forgive me of my sin. If you've never come to a place in your life and you've entrusted your life to Christ, the picture of which we saw in baptism this morning of one who who dies and is raised to new life, the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. If you've never come to that place where you've been born again, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus is calling you and leading you this morning. It's as simple as surrendering to Him in prayer, confessing your sin before Him and saying, Lord Jesus, I surrender. It's all about You. It's not about me. Forgive me and live in me. 
this morning, believer, if you've been challenged by the illustration of John the Baptist's life to live joyfully in the presence of Christ and to submit and surrender your life to Christ, if you've been challenged this morning that you need to learn to delight in surrendering to God, I want you to confess before Him this morning that you're open. You're open. Teach me how to delight in surrender. Teach me how to be like John the Baptist who is ready and willing to, to find his greatest joy, saying my joy is complete in knowing that your will and your work through me and in me is being accomplished and has been satisfied, has been done. Let us pray. Father, Father of heaven, you are gracious and merciful that you would even include us in your redemptive plan. And Lord, we are so thankful for the way that you work in our lives and so thankful for what you do in our lives, how you lead us, and you're so patient with us, tenderly patient. We ask you this morning, Lord, that you would strengthen us to live these lives fully committed, wholly surrendered to you. Lord, that you would teach us how to find great delight and great joy in serving you. And Lord, we ask you this morning, I ask you on behalf of those who might be struggling in sin that you would strengthen them and God that you would grip their heart and let them know that by your spirit you give the strength to walk in newness of life. Lord, if there be anybody here this morning who is coming to you for the very first time seeking to be born again, we want to rejoice with them as the angels in heaven rejoice. We want to praise you on that on that account, Lord. So we pray that you give them strength today as well to follow you, to surrender to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?